Hello and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. Like everyone else, we have been shocked and gripped by the invasion of Ukraine, the tragedies, the stories of heroism and the magnitude of it all for our geopolitics. Today we're going to touch on that, but we are also going to come back to the UK politics of the war too. For this, we are delighted to be joined by David Taylor of the Labour Campaign for International Development. I'm also, as ever, joined by my co-host Martin Rogers. Hi Martin. Hello Steve. Hello. Uh, and David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, perhaps you could kick off by introducing yourself and maybe if you'd like, tell us a bit about the Labour campaign for international development. Well, thanks very much, Steve and Martin. It's great to be on, on the podcast. I am the uh, founder and current vice chair of the Labour campaign for international development. We're a socialist society affiliated to the Labour Party with a focus on international development and in recent years, trying to defend the aid budget as much as possible. We were quite key in, in the passing of the law to enshrine the 0.7% target in law, which, you know, although the aid budget has reduced in recent years, uh, it, it's still a success that in all these years of Tory rule, the aid budget has been where it has. And then I think really on the back of the, the advocacy that Joe Cox was doing, and, and sadly, um, in response to her murder, um, we have also been campaigning around civilian protection, uh, most notably around Syria, but also continuing on across a, a variety of conflicts from, from Yemen to um, what's happening with the, um, the, the mass atrocities against the Uyghur people as well. So a focus on aid and international development, a focus on civilian protection and trying to influence labour policy contribute to what's happening in Parliament and raise awareness amongst the, the members of the Labour Party is really what we're all about. Thanks, David. Now, do you mind just sort of starting off by um, essentially telling us about your reaction when you found out that Russia has invaded Ukraine and sort of how you felt about that given your work with the Campaign for International Development? Well, I mean, like, like you both, I, I was following it quite closely, but that, that morning that it happened, I'd actually uh, was going up for London for work for a meeting with um, climate change uh, advocates uh, and was on the train to London before I'd even looked to the news. And just uh, first feeling was just an overwhelming sadness, really. Um, we'd all, we talked about this previously, but last summer, when everything was happening in Afghanistan and Kabul was falling, I just felt an overwhelming sense of sadness that we, 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 we as a country had let people down and uh, similar feelings um, to this. And I, 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 I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw that the, um, some Ukrainians in London were having a protest outside Downing Street. So uh, having looked back at the Syria side of things and wish I'd done more, I, I decided to sort of skip the um, first part of this away day that I was going to and headed straight to the uh, to the protest outside Downing Street. And I have to be honest, at that point, you know, it was midday on that Thursday, there weren't a huge amount of people there. It, I did feel very sorry for the Ukrainians who were there. Um, what was a bit more heartening was that later in the day and in the days since, there has been an overwhelming um, response um, from the British public, which uh, has been really heartening to see. So, you know, it, my, my fear has been that the we just look on and, and watch like we did in Syria and just let these atrocities happen. And obviously there are some really awful things happening in Ukraine and it may well get worse. 
but my sense is that we'll get into this that the response has been a lot better and that the world is finally waking up to what a monster Putin is and trying to stop the, the war crimes happening with um, impunity in the way that they have done in Syria in the last decade. Uh, is there a reason or reasons other than the sort of geographical proximity why the the response to what's going on in Ukraine has been different and so different to some of the other things that you've talked about like obviously Syria what's going on in Yemen Afghanistan to some extent to some extent the, the Uyghurs is it just the fact that it's the European continent or do you think there's anything else there that justifies such a difference in sort of uh, response to the situation? I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I guess it's a subject that we'll, we'll keep coming back to. I mean, the, I, I've, I've definitely noted the, the consternation for which some of the people that I follow on, on Twitter who are Syrian activists or journalists who covered the Syrian conflict have reacted to the sort of you know, incredible frustration to the fact that, yeah, we told you, we kept telling you and you didn't listen, uh, has been very much the tone from them about, you know, the, the, the playbook that Putin is following in Ukraine is just identical in so many ways to what he and Assad have done in, in Syria, you know, the bombing of hospitals and the claim in there that there were radicals or fighters in the hospital afterwards and all this false flag nonsense around chemical weapons that we're now worried about. Um, I guess the, you know, uh, so perhaps the proximity thing is the thing that's that's jolted people's consciousness. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that there is a, a, a always has been a, a huge amount of uh, support in the British public for helping people around the world. I think with Syria, all of us, myself included, have felt a sense of uh, hopelessness and fatigue and and things were were not getting better and weren't changing there weren't options for or no one was interested in options for resolving the conflict so so i i put the if i'm if we've been generous i would say the british public's uh, perception of syria is more to do with that a sense of helplessness and you know, what what can we do about it than than not caring um and uh, i mean it, it, we all have the worry don't we that this this conflict will snowball into something something bigger than involving other parts of the continent. I mean, uh, we will hope they won't, but the um, there are yeah, particularly, well, we'll have to see what happens with oil and gas, right? But we already had a cost of living crisis in this country and that, that could get a lot worse. Uh, the same in the continent um, as the uh, as the war progresses. So, so I, you know, I think it's understandable that this is in people's consciousness, um, perhaps the, because it is closer to us. I don't think that means that we shouldn't have compassion and have focus on other conflicts around the world, of course not. But uh, yeah, I, so what, what I guess I'm saying in summary is I think we could spend a lot of time making points about this, but in a way, does it really matter? Like, the, let's use this opportunity to really uh, turn the screws on Putin as much as possible. And my hope would be that if he gets bogged down in here and begins to hopefully lose this war, then it will have a could have a positive effect in in Syria if it means that he's no longer the resources are being pulled away from bombing civilians in in, Ale, in Aleppo and Idlib. So you know, let's um, let's see. That's that's not particularly uh, well thought through analysis. It's just a blind hope that maybe um, this is a turning point against his aggression around the world. So we're we're quite a few days into the 
conflict now. I think it's about a week and a half. Um, and it's a massive question, but but, but quickly, what, what's your assessment of where we are now? Well, I, I'm, I'm certainly no expert. And, um, you know, I've been following the uh, MOD updates. I've been following uh, analysts like um, Jimmy Sec on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, there's journalists like Oz Kataraji who are out there um, who obviously got better view than I have. Uh, we're not seeing the we're not seeing the Ukrainian losses, are we? So that's the thing that's worrying. Um, that we're, we're seeing lots of images and pictures of uh, the failings of the Russian attack, but the um, but we're not seeing the losses that the Ukrainians are suffering. So you know, I, I, I think we've got to be careful not to be. I'm, I'm torn essentially between a sense of optimism that this war is clearly not going well for Russia, that they are losing a lot of resources and they're not making the advances they thought they would. And also a huge amount of like admiration for the way that the Ukrainian and the Ukrainian government are fighting back um, with a sense of like, let's not get our hopes up too high because they Russians still have the overwhelming number of resources and they don't seem to care about the uh, lots of things, statistics being quoted around the losses of personnel versus the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Well, I don't think Putin really cares how many people he kills on either side. So I don't think we can read too much into that. Um, I still worry that there's going to be massive sieges of the major cities that are going to go on for months and that there will be a huge amount of suffering as a result of that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a mixed picture, isn't it? I, I, I think they haven't made the... They obviously thought they'd get a quick war. Um, they haven't got that. Um, I think the analysis that says that they are not going to be able to occupy the country uh, for any period of time is, is, is correct. Uh, but that doesn't mean that... If, if, the ex, if the exit point is that Russia retreats, that's obviously great. I think there's going to be a huge amount of suffering between then and now, uh, sorry, now and then, uh, whenever that point comes. And uh, yeah, my my main worries are around the, the sieges that we're seeing. Not least because, you know, I think that we have seen a, a good amount of support go in to Ukraine. The British government does deserve credit, actually, for the, the amount of weapons that they've been able to get into Ukrainians. And we're clearly seeing the successes of those anti-tank uh, weapons and N-laws and so on manpads and so on uh, against uh, Russian forces. Um, but it's not, I'm yet to see it, any analysis that's showing how you might be able to stop the missiles coming into civilian targets that we're seeing. Now it, there's a lot of talk around no-fly zones, but a lot of, it seems to me that a lot of the weapon is is surface uh, to air missiles. So, so uh, several kilometers away from these cities on the ground firing in these missiles that are causing the damage they're causing so that's the thing that i'm worried about i'm not currently seeing a way in which that can be successfully uh, repelled thanks so we'll come back to talk about foreign aid in ukraine specifically but let's start start with an aspect of the ukraine situation that has been sort of rumbling along in the background and that's the labor's response so can you talk us through the change in Labour and what's going on with Labour's internal dynamics? So 
we can talk about the more recent times with like the stop the war attitudes towards Russia and NATO around the sort of Corbyn leadership and Corbyn support. But can you also maybe go back a little bit further and talk about like Ed Miliband, the vote on Syria and put what's sort of going on now within Labour within that sort of historical context for the party? Yeah, sure. Well, it's been a very difficult time on, on foreign policy for a number of years within Labour. From, from my perspective, I mean, my, my opinions have changed over time, as, as indeed they should. I mean, when I was, um, uh, when the Iraq war was going on, I, I was still at school. Uh, I, I marched against it. I still believe it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, about a year later, in 2004, I went to Kosovo uh, with the British Council, and it fundamentally changed my views from being quite pacifist to actually believing that intervention in the right circumstances is the right thing to do. And when you've met people, or literally someone who was born on the same day as me, who on the day that I was complaining about on my birthday that Manchester United hadn't won, uh, she was walking uh, across the border into Albania into safety, having been um, separate from family. I mean, it's, nothing can put things in perspective more, more than meeting someone the same age as you who has um, nearly died as a result of um, mass atrocities by a, a brutal dictator. And, and I think if you look at the uh, role that Labour played there in uh, Kosovo and Sierra Leone, that, that, was, uh, that was, for me, what an ethical foreign policy sh should look like. I think clearly what happened in Iraq uh, sent shockwaves for the Labour Party. I, I think we, we all know that. Ed Miliband's response to what happened in Syria, there are mixed views. You know, there are some there are people around Ed who will say that, you know, it, it wasn't what you're saying. It was that we uh, saw that Cameron had no plan for what what to do, and that's why we voted against it. I, you know, that's what that's what they say, and. That may well be the, the case. I think what worried me was the way that the vote in 2013 around Syria was spun as part of this, look, we're standing up to the US. Um, that's the reason to vote for us. And, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not going to name names. I don't really even know who's responsible for that. I just know that that was something that was coming from the top of the party at the time. <clears throat> And I think, unfortunately, that meant that we, as a party, pandered to those on the, the far left to stop the war um, in a way that I didn't think was acceptable. Um, and we didn't, and more than that, there, there was a vacuum, I think, where the only people talking to Labour members were the stop the war law. And people on my side of the party weren't making the argument to the party that in certain circumstances, the best thing to do to protect civilians from mass atrocity and genocide is to intervene in a number of ways, including militarily. And I, I take my own personal share of the blame for that. I think, looking back, I wish Elsid had got more involved in those debates at the time. And it was only really after the death of Joe that we that we did start to get involved in that side of things. But but that. It is straight to the part of the problem. She was doing incredible advocacy, but it was really only her and a handful of others in the party who were making the case uh, consistently that, that you, you needed to prepare to, to act. So it's uh, it meant that our policies in Syria since 2013 under both Miliband and Corbyn were, were terrible. Um, what has been 
great to see is, is the change since Keir was elected. Uh, the, I have to be honest, there was a, there was a pledge that was made by, by him during his leadership campaign that um, was around there having to be a law passed uh, so that MPs had to vote on any military intervention abroad, which might sound un, un, uncontroversial, but if you look at the history of response to mass atrocity and genocide, one of the problems time and time again is uh, slowness to respond and barriers being put in the way. And I know that's not a popular argument to make in, in the response, given, given Iraq, but if you're the prime minister and you get a call at five in, in the morning from you know, someone in the MOD saying, we've got intelligence that ISIS are about to massacre a village of Yazidi people in northern Iraq, uh, we have the ability to fire missiles uh, to stop those ISIS forces doing that. Do you want to do that? And the response is, mm, I'd like to, but I need to have a vote tomorrow uh, in Parliament before I can do this. Then I'm sorry, but that's just not sensible. So anyway, sorry to go down that rabbit hole. But it's just to say that I was a bit worried to begin with, but I have been very, very happy with the way in which Keir and the leadership have responded to this crisis. The it was long overdue that we um, uh, clamped down on uh, on stop the war, and that those MPs were were forced to to take their names off that statement. They stopped the war on a appalling organisation, which I'm sure we can get to. But um, but yeah, I think it's been right, and 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 also remember, like the British public and are in a much more sensible place on this, and always have been. But they're rightly sceptical about uh, intervening in um, to protect civilians abroad because of the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but nonetheless, they expect the Labour Party to be sensible and grown up about these issues. And to, to conclude, you know, one of the drivers, I, I think, is that, that they want to be very, very clear with the British public that we are a party who uh, will do the right thing in the time of national crisis and put a clear line between uh, them and the uh, appalling response to the attack on British soil um, by Russian agents. Um, uh, around Skirpal, which um, many, uh, a lot of analysis has put to blame for why Labour lost the 2019 election. I mean, not the only reason, but a big factor. So, you know, I think it's been impressive all round, really, both from the terms of uh, the right thing to do and uh, the positioning with the British public. I'm keen to get on to Starmer's response in a bit, but I just thought... Um... I'd ask you a bit more about Stop the War because I'm on their website and I and and reading it, it's all very much motherhood and apple pie. And you wouldn't think there's anything particularly, um, you know, maybe naive is the worst you'd you'd say about it. And I just, you, you, I think you describe them as far left, and maybe you could give a bit of context to that because I imagine lots of people who don't follow politics very closely might just think, oh, well, this is a protest against who dislikes military action, which pretty much everyone dislikes military action. So, what what is behind Stop the War? What do they believe? Well, I mean, the, the problem with the website is that they um, they delete things that they they put up that uh, when when people <laughs> rightly point out how stupid they are. So, you know, until recently, there was a post on there about someone had written that said, "If there has to be a winner, let it be Russia." In the context of the Crimea uh, conflict, and there's time time again, they've held events in Parliament, they've held events, uh, rallies where either they've had speakers that have a really appalling uh, history of supporting um, uh, horrible views like, um, oh, to give two examples, on Syria, 
they invited someone um, who was a notorious pro-Assad voice to speak at one of their events. Um, at another event where there were actual uh, Syrian activists who were anti-Assad, uh, they refused to let them speak. They refused to let them answer a question from the floor. So uh, this idea that this, they're this voice of the voiceless is just completely nonsense when they won't give a voice to the people actually affected by these conflicts. Their origins are, um, there's, there's quite a lot of, uh, I, I don't follow this stuff massively closely, but they, as I understand it, that a lot of the core of that group are former Socialist Worker Party. So they're not even Labour, they're Socialist Worker Party, a fringe far-left party. Um, but there's all sorts of dodgy um, um, links running through all these people. I mean, um, this guy called Andrew Murray, one of Corbyn's close advisors, Unite, very close to Len McCluskey, uh, who'd written an article once um, defending North Korea. Uh, a, a number of, I think he was part of, the, until recently, the Communist Party of Great Britain. These are the people that, even when the Berlin Wall was falling, were still defending um, the Soviet Union. Uh, you've got people like Seamus Milne, who was Corbyn's uh, media advisor, who has just penned appalling articles over the years, casting doubt on whether um, Assad was really responsible for chemical weapons attacks. Uh, he's been on, on stage with Putin in the past. You know, there's, there's, they're not a peace movement. And if they were, why have they not in recent time, in recent weeks, with all the criticism against them, just direct people to go along to the actual um, pro-peace rallies uh, for um, against the war in Ukraine. You know, there's been no shortage of legitimate anti-war um, pro-Ukraine protests in London and around the country. And, and there was a farcical situation at the weekend where they had their own sort of protest um, in a separate part of Trafalgar Square. I mean, how self-indulgent can you be? Just get involved with what the Ukrainians are calling for. And, and to give credit to the other parts of the, to the Labour movement, you've got organisations like the Ukrainian Solidarity Campaign. Um, there's another one called the Weaker Solidarity Campaign, probably to the left of where I am, but uh, they're uh, at least engaging with the uh, communities of, of the countries affected. And um, they uh, have a much more sensible and credible position on, on all these conflicts, which I, I completely respect. And you know, credit to people like Nadia Whitten, who, have, who are on the left of the Labour Party, who have engaged in those groups, instead of the likes of Richard Burgeon and someone who stuck to um, supporting this, um, this terrible organisation, in my opinion. The phrase that comes to mind while you're speaking is not so much stop the war, but stop the West. And I think I've seen that um, sort of repeated quite a few times. Just before we move on, uh, what's your assessment of how widespread within the Labour Party is sympathy for the kind of attitudes that stop the war has? Is it quite fringe or, or is there quite a lot of support for it? Well, thankfully, I think it is quite fringe. And one of the things that I've been doing with Labour campaign for international development is setting up a speakers network to try and talk to as many uh, Labour parties around the country as possible with voices from uh, the, the conflicts in question. So we will uh, offer up our speakers and we'll go along to a local Labour Party me meeting over Zoom. And we've had speakers dialing in from Kosovo, from uh, Rwanda, from um, Yemeni activists, Uyghur activists and, and Syrian activists. And it's really been an opportunity to talk directly to, to Labour members about some of these issues and in a non-confrontational way, because, you know, I know I've just gone on a, a long 
diatribe about stop the war. But, but the really my anger comes from not a partisan place, but from a place of real anger and frustration that the, the people that really matter in this, uh, you know, the Syrian activists and so on, their voices haven't been heard in recent years. And, and it's really important that when we're making a decision around um, to intervene or not, that we listen to those those voices. And uh, you know, just to, my, my views on these, these different conflicts uh, are, are varied. I'm not some kind of hawk. It's about what's the best approach in a particular um, situation. Give an example, sorry, <clears throat> give an example of Joe Cox. You know, she was very much of the view that we should do something in Syria to, to help, but it had to be the right action. She herself abstained on the, uh, the vote and to whether to bomb ISIS in uh, the end of um, 2015. I took a different view, and, uh, uh, but, but that's exactly the space I, th I think the party should be in, where we're all committed to what's the best solution to protecting civilians. And what we're debating is the, the best way to do it. You know, that's that's what where we need to be. And I, I do think that the party as a whole is uh, is uh, the membership as a whole is receptive to that that approach. And we haven't had any negative feedback on any of the talks that we've done. I think the the issue has been that, as I said earlier, there's been a vacuum that the only people talking to to grassroots Labour members were the Stop the War lot. And um, you know that's uh, that's on us really. We should have been. Um, better engaging with uh, the members about these issues and that's something that we need to continue to do. We've touched on this a bit already. Is there anything else you want to add on top of what you have said about what you've made of Starmer's positioning on Ukraine and how well he's done in terms of distancing himself from Corbyn and the wider sort of previous leadership and their supporters? Well, I, th I don't think he could have been clearer, really, that he um, is uh, of the view that, that we should be supporting NATO uh, fully. Um, and, and um, I, yeah, I've been very, very pleased to see the article in The Guardian criticising the Stop the War and calling them out for what they are. But more importantly, all the, all the, the work and the communications they've done to, to explain to the British public what our position is on, on Ukraine. There's been um, good work with, with him and David Lammy on the uh, sanctions side of things. Um, there's been good work with um, Rachel Reeves on that as well, of course. Uh, there's been good work with Yvette Cooper on our response to taking refugees. There's been good work with, uh, on, with John Healy on the defence side. And, and you know, recently they went out to visit troops in, in Estonia, which was, which was great to see as well. I think it's really important that we're showing that we are on the side of uh, standing up to Putin and, and protecting the security of Ukrainians and the security of the, the UK. I mean, remember that NATO was set up by a Labour government. This is this idea that um, we are, this stop the war is, is part of the tradition of Labour Party is just nonsense. You know, we, we have been a party that has supported um, clear-headed response to, to conflicts across the world. You know, so many of that Labour government fought in the Second World War. They, they fought against fascism. These are grown-ups. And that is a tradition, I think, in, in Labour of um, the, the right response to securing um, Britain and sticking up for the British people, but also uh, an ethical foreign policy that, that Robin Cook and others were espousing of um, doing the right thing when necessary to protect civilians abroad from being massacred. I noticed also that um, 
as part of the positioning, Starmer has attacked the links in the Conservative Party to Russian money. And I, I wonder whether there's a balancing act there between pointing this out while it's in the public eye and not seeming to, um, to, to be confused about who the real um, enemy is. I remember when Corbyn, uh, when the triple poisonings happened, he, he sort of seemed to be more focused on attacking Tories than, than criticising Putin. I wondered, what are your thoughts on how that's been handled? Because I was in really two minds about it. Yeah, it's a good point. I'm no expert when it comes to that, that side of things. I know that there's been there's been a there's been a lot of debate, hasn't there, about Labour's response to the the pandemic and whether getting the balance right between criticising the rightly the failings. Of, of the government's response to the pandemic and uh, a sense that the British public were not interested in, in that being pointed out at the time. I mean, it, you know, later on, um, as the, you know, in 2020, that was deemed not, I think the analysis was that the British public didn't think that was great in the 2020, in, in 2020, that we shouldn't have been attacking the government at that point, but have been more open to it since you know, Partygate, obviously. Uh, whether that's the same on in this case, I don't know, but I, I think we've got to be uh, attacking them on this because they, uh, I mean, they've been so slow to respond on on sanctioning oligarchs. I know that they've done something yesterday uh, around Abramovich, and as a Manchester United fan, I'm quite happy. Who's best mates Chelsea fan? I'm quite happy to see that. But but uh, there is a sense that there has been uh, too much of a delay in that these sanctions are not going to bite in the way they should do because they basically signal to the, the Russians that they can, uh, that they've got time to get their money out. Now, got to be careful how, how you phrase that. You don't want to come across some um, sort of conspiracy theorist, but it's not, it doesn't smell right, does it? That you've got such a strong link between Tory donors and on the one hand, uh, Russians and Tory, donating to the Tory party on the one hand, and on the other hand, a response on sanctions that's seemingly out of step with what the rest of them you know, Europe and the US are doing. So no, I think it's I think it's fair enough to um, don't you know we're, we're being very very clear that we are supportive of what the British government is doing to um, support the Ukrainians and very supportive British troops. That's absolutely the right thing to do. I don't think it's in any way inconsistent to be criticising the Tories at the, the same time for their connections to donors. Um, but you know. Uh, but it'd be interesting to see what polling says about that and whether the British public have uh, seen seen that distinction and whether they're critical of our response. Thanks. So let's sort of move on from talking about this particular crisis to the, the wider picture of sort of international development, humanitarian aid. So can you just describe Labour's position on international development generally? and how it's changed over the years? Well, we're the party that set up the first overseas development department back in the 60s. Um, Barbara Castle was the first minister of international on, on overseas development, as they then called uh, back in the 60s. We were the first party to set up an international department for development in 1997. The first to put us on the track to meeting 0.7, the historic 0.7 target. And in that time, there was a big focus on trying to support labor values overseas. So a lot of money going into 
public education around the world, public healthcare and building public healthcare systems around the world, to supporting labour rights and supporting development of cooperatives around the world. And then at the Prime Ministerial and Chancellor level, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown really did lead the world in terms of trying to get a race to the top on international development, drop the debt campaign that was successful in, in dropping debt to a, a number of uh, really poor and indebted countries around the world, trebling of aid that was agreed by the G8, as it then was in 2005, the was trying to get a global agreement on, on climate change. I know that Copenhagen didn't get the results, it did, but it was Gordon that said, was the first world leader to say that he would attend in person, which had never happened before uh, those, those talks, and then ensuring that in the response to the global crisis, uh, economic crisis, the London G20 summit, that there was a sizable amount of resourcing going over to supporting uh, the poorest countries in the response to that um, economic crisis. Since 2010, of course, in opposition, we've been trying to uh, hold the Tories to account as best we can, trying to ensure that aid continues to be spent in the right ways and is not diverted for the wrong objectives and that aid, uh, the amount of aid stays on it that did. And trying to be you know, clever about it too. You know, We have been oppos in opposition, so it is about making the point that our values are different and that we, if we're running Department of International Development, then it will have a Labour imprint and that there are certain values that the Tories um, like supporting public health care and public education that the Tories just don't do when they're in government. And we've seen a decrease in the amount of money going to support public health care and public education over the years of Tory rules, but also working with those people on the opposite benches who are willing to do the right thing when it comes to preserving the 0.7% target. So you know, over the last couple of years, it might seem as if Labour's been a bit quiet on international development, but what we've actually been trying to do is give the Conservatives space to, to act and to try and get enough rebels to, um, to vote against the government and to, um, to, to try and bring 0.7 back. So that's a sort of broad outline of, of where we are. I mean, we've, we're committed to, the Labour Party official position is committed to bringing 0.7 back when when exiting government, uh, Keir Starmer on the day of the, the, the DFID was abolished said that a Labour government would bring it back um, and we hope that, that that happens too. Uh, I think the other thing that's really crucial um, that is that when we are exiting government, we do see a return to the, the new Labour years with the leadership of development coming from the, the PM and the Chancellor as well as Secretary of State for International Development and the Foreign Secretary. It's really important that this is a, a cross-government piece because there's so much more you can do beyond aid from the, you know, the debt relief that I've just talked about to things like action on climate change and trade and so on. And quickly, what do you make of, and I mean, you touched on this already, the, the West's response to the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine in terms of um, the aid side of things? And I think maybe we'll come on a minute to talk about refugees as well, but um, have you been happy with that or to what extent have you been happy with that? Well, I've been having lots of discussions with various experts about what the, the right response is, really, because instinctively, when there were calls for a no-fly zone, my first reaction was to be to be supportive. But but the difference is that the Russia is a, is a nuclear power. And if we'd got in there in Syria before Russia had, had intervened, 
I think we could have had a, a, a no-fly zone, um, but we missed the chance. And so therefore I am sympathetic to those people who are of the view that a no-fly zone is not the right thing to do, simply because the, um, well, not simply at this point, but because in order to implement a no-fly zone, as I understand it, talking to military experts, you would have to, you would have to strike first to, to disable the uh, Russia's ability to shoot down our planes. So there's, there's, it's difficult to, to <laughs> that's what happened in, in Libya, like that isn't really talked about, but there was this first strike on the ability of the Libyan, uh, of Gaddafi's uh, forces to shoot down um, NATO planes. So that's the that's the tricky thing that that you've been looking at this from all angles, but I just don't see how you can do a, a no-fly zone at the moment. If and when there's military expertise that says that you could do it without major escalation, then I am I'm I'm all for it because you know, we've got to find ways of protecting civilians from the type of bombings that we've seen in recent days of and these and these horror, these hideous war crimes. Um I know I'm veering more on the military side than the humanitarian side, but where with I mean, my my point is that that got, saving lives have got to come first, right? So, there, I'm very supportive of any efforts you can get weapons and support into the Ukrainians. Um, the trouble is there is a little limit to what you can do because in order to be able to use certain military equipment, you do require about six months training at least. So, you know, it isn't just a case of giving them the weapons; they've got to be able to, to know. The right way to use them and the tactics that are necessary and there is the limit to what you can do thankfully uh, some stuff has has been done in advance of this conflict to help them prepare um but even things like the the, the recent debate around debacle around the mig aircraft from poland uh i i, I really i'm definitely of the view that they should be put inside ukraine as, as quickly as possible and I just want the Ukrainians and the Polish, uh, sorry, the, the US and the Polish to just figure out what they want to do about this. But I have heard some people say, well, even if you get the aircraft into Ukraine, have they got the pilots to, to, to do it? I mean, you, the assumption is that they, because they're the aircraft, they would know how to fly them, but I don't know. It's um, it's complicated, isn't it? And uh, I'm not, I defer to any any experts in, who've been in the RAF and elsewhere to, to say what the right thing to do is. I just want to find a way of supporting. I mean, the alternatives that I've been looking at, or we've been looking at rather, is um, humanitarian uh, aid flights. Like, could you repeat something like Berlin Air, Airlift if it came to it to get supplies in? And um, then the then the onus would be on Putin to escalate. You know, the, 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 they would have to shoot actually shoot down unarmed planes um, to, so, so if there was any escalation, you can't say that NATO is responsible for es escalation. You know, it's uh, if, if they shoot down human humanitarian flights. Uh, I, as I said to you earlier, I'm worried about the sieges that are going to happen and that there isn't going to be, the food is going to run out. I and mean, we're already seeing this in some of the, the eastern parts of the, the country, right, where some of the cities are running out of electricity and water and people are freezing. Um, would, anything we can do to try and get resources in is going to be very, very necessary. I'm not close enough to what's happening on the ground to know if the humanitarian response is gearing up in the way it should do. I hope it is, um, but that's something that we clearly need to be looking at. Like these sieges are going to go, could go on for months. Like how are we going to get resources in? And I'd like to see aid flights being one thing that's looked at. You know, it could be their, their convoys on the ground. Uh, uh, it's, these things have just got to be 
looked at, I think. I think the thing is, again, this is where we defer to experts is so important. One of the things that is really important is to be very, very careful about what Russia is proposing on any of these things, because they have played us and the UN uh, time and time again in Syria. They, they have these supposed UN humanitarian corridors. And then, uh, as we've seen, they've, they've mined the roads or they've that they start shooting people in the middle of it or they start stopping lorries full of food coming into a particular place or they only there was a bit in syria where they would they only let lorries into one half of the city and that caused an internal rift between people in that city you know all kinds of shenanigans um so i'm i'm i think what we what i guess i'm saying is we have to be listen to experts be really creative not be bogged down in it being a un thing or not you know, we, we all want to believe in the UN, but unfortunately that the Syria crisis has shown that the UN system is, is not fit for purpose. So, you know, whatever way you can find to get humanitarian stuff into the into Ukraine, you've got to do it. Thanks. Now, we've let you off fairly easily so far, but in the last five minutes, I'd just like to, um, to wrap up with the, the trickiest, possibly the trickiest issue that, uh, of all of this and somewhere that it's really important to try and find the sort of center ground on and political center, which is what on earth can you do about refugees? So we've obviously got the, the sort of specifics of the refugees from the Ukraine conflict, but we can widen this to, uh, to Afghanistan, um, just sort of more recently, uh, Hong Kong, there's an issue of, uh, about refugees, as well, which seems to be more sort of favourably um, seen by the UK, uh, Syria that we've talked about a lot. Um, so firstly, how big a part does settling refugees play? What do you see as the relationship between aid and migration? And finally, how do you find a sort of a centre ground given uh, sort of widespread public wariness of uh, sort of migration, refugees, immigration, um, you know, boats in the channel, all of these sorts of things. So uh, can you try and uh, sort of speak to that for uh, to close us, please? Sure. Well, I think there's got to be a fair share analysis about what the uh, appropriate amount of uh, people it is to that the UK should, should be bringing in and, and play our part to it. And it seems to me, it seems to a lot of people that that is, we're nowhere near taking our fair share of, uh, of people. Uh, this, this Ukrainian crisis has shown, shown that the, the, the Afghan uh, resettlement scheme has been, has been ridiculous, it's been a farce, it's been, it's been months now and, and still people aren't being let in. Uh, in the way that they should be, you've got to give councils the resources needed to ensure that people are um, uh, settled in appropriately, in appropriate accommodation, and that there isn't a strain on, on local resources. Uh, that clearly hasn't been the case in all the, the perception has been that that has not been the case in the past, and you've got to counter that. And uh, I, I, I do think that if you um, address some of those issues, around uh, council cuts and the, the lack of uh, social housing and so on and so forth and then some of the the frustrations that, that some members of the public have will, will fall away uh, I, I know i said this a lot but i'm not an expert on this so 
I um I, I don't have definitely don't have all the answers, but the but surely if you give councils the resources they need to to settle people, then then and and boost local services, then some of the resentment that can sometimes come will will ever weigh. You you would hope. Um, because I think we absolutely have to take our fair share of refugees. It's the right thing to do. Um, and you know, we've got to find a way through this that isn't uh, just sort of uh, it's allowing community resentment to, to grow. And um, uh, and on the one hand, by, by not providing any extra resources or anything, um, and or completely shutting the door on the other hand, and uh, and not being compassionate and, and, and playing our part. Uh, I mean, in terms of the relationship between aid and migration, I, I don't think there is um, any evidence that there's a direct link. I think that we should be giving aid because it's the right thing to do and because it alleviates poverty, and and um, I and not because of a sort of. Uh, the, the arguments around the benefits of Britain, I just don't think are the right ones to make, in my opinion. Um, I, in general, of course, we should be helping resolve conflicts and helping countries to develop. You've, develop. If you ask anyone who has escaped a conflict, who has come here as an economic migrant, if they'd rather be in their own home, uh, in their own home, they'll tell you, of course. Uh, but they felt they had no other option but to go. So. In the long term, that's what aid and development is is all about. Really. It's about making the world in general more prosperous and reducing conflict. And you know, everything we can do to support that, let, let's do it. But I don't think that it's I don't think it's sensible to, to link a particular aid program to to to, um, to refugees and um, at all. Um, you know, we've we've got to we've got to do both. It's about doing our bit, really. And, uh, you know, if you look at, I've seen some of the analysis of the Ukraine uh, conflict has basically been like that when it comes to military support, Britain's been doing the right thing. When it comes to sanctions, we've been three out of five. And when it comes to refugees, we've been about zero to one. So it's about, you know, there are different things we can do to be a proper member of the international community. And it's about playing our part in each of them. Uh, and at the moment, I, I don't think anyone could argue that the British government is playing its part when it comes to the, uh, the international refugee crisis. Do you mind if I just sort of come in ever so quickly? I just wanted to follow up something about the sort of the wider public support and the sort of um, the centre ground uh, sort of issue, which is about um, public sort of criticism, scepticism around aid and its proper use. So do you have a sort of sense of where the public is and what the general sort of feeling of support towards sort of international development and aid is? what its proper use is and sort of where it's legitimate that some criticism of sort of usage and, um, you know, that sort of public support for all of these things. Well, the evidence seems to be that the public want are supportive of aid if they're confident that that money is being well spent. And so it's the onus is on us in the international development, as support of international development to prove to the British public that the money is being well spent and to give examples and stories of the ways in which their contributions are making a difference. So there, uh, I know it's going back a few years now, but during the Ebola crisis, there was a, there was um, people, 
communicating about aid in the context of the Ebola crisis was a good way of getting across the importance of aid in general, because it was something that people had seen in the news and that they could, it was a, it was a, it was a health crisis. It wasn't something so complicated that we've had 20 different angles to it. It was easy to communicate the contribution that British aid was making to saving lives in that context. So you've got to keep making the case for that. Now, the, the problem that we've had in the last 10 years in particular is, uh, is the twin role of, well, it's kind of eating itself, really. The Tories come in and try to prove to, to the right of their party and to the Daily Mail and others that we're going to get tough on reckless aid spending when there wasn't really any reckless aid spending to begin with. I mean, you know, I'm not saying every penny spent by the last Labour government on international development was perfectly spent. Of course, there would have been mistakes made. There's going to be. Um, but the idea that we were being um, negligent and that money wasn't being spent on, on, on saving lives and transforming lives is just a nonsense. So they would pick up in the first few months of winning power the fact that we'd given money to some, to, to you know, what they call this, oh, this dance troupe in Hackney and how outrageous is it that aid's being spent, when actually that project was around raising awareness of international development within the community, you know, within the Hackney community, which is no bad thing. So it wasn't that aid was being wasted or fiddled away. It was that this was an important part of, or one way of communicating um, the impact that aid was, was having. And the other thing they would do, as well as sort of leaking stories to the mail and others to show that um, the wastage and supposed wastage of labour and the ways in which they were getting tough, um, was that they slashed those kind of programmes, development, education, uh, awareness, which is really, really unhelpful because you've got to have a proportion of, uh, of funding. I know it sounds controversial, but you've got to have a proportion of uh, funding going to, to raise awareness amongst the UK public in order to generate or continue to generate support for, for aid going forward, right? So we had a good programme of uh, development education in schools that was helping raise awareness with the next generation of the importance of helping people uh, beyond our shores. That was something the Tories uh, slashed. Um, they also cut funding for uh, charities uh, as well. That was money that they were using to run campaigns, uh, to raise awareness amongst the public, to call on the public to support international development. So these things sort of eat itself really because the less awareness there is, the more the British public are going to be uh, listening to uh, stories from the Daily Mail and, and everything else about how terrible it is because that's the only thing that they hear. And um, unfortunately, it's just got worse and worse as, as we've gone on for this Tory government because each new development secretary would come in and be like, there's wastage in this department. I'm going to be tough on it, blah, blah, blah. And the cycle would begin again. So it's it's frustrating. I, I, but against that background, we've got no other option as a sector to than to keep making the case for aid as best we can to get better at our comms, um, to ensure that the stories that we are putting out there are uh, communicating properly the ways in which aid is having an impact. David, thank you. It's been a brilliant discussion, if on a, in a slightly um, sombre context. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And as ever, thanks, Martin. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, David, very much. And uh, to listeners, thank you for listening.